Hello, and welcome to the WTF is going on in the WTO edition of Intrigue Explained. We are back, just like last week, except maybe not just like last week, Dimitri, because you are the only one with me on this call. We are missing Helen Jang, my co-founder at International Intrigue. She's off in Korea, hobnobbing with Ban Ki-moon. She sent us a photo of, of her with, with Ban Ki-moon, as only Helen can. So this week, just Dimitri, founder of uh, the trade platform Explain Trade. How are you, Dimitri? I'm well. I can't believe she left us unsupervised. We brought her in exclusively because we cannot be trusted. Anything that happens on this episode is 100% Helen's fault, and uh, I want that on the record. Well, doubly so, because this is a WTO episode that I want the audience to know John tried to prevent in order to spare you from my World Trade Organization rants, and Helen went, no, no, that'll be so interesting, and then proceeded not to turn up. That is truly like the Joker, like throwing the match over his shoulder and walking away from a burning fire, right? Like it's, I'm really trying to prevent the train wreck that's coming, folks, but here we are. As you're entering the 17th hour of my monologue on (laughs) WTO history, that like Putin's interview will begin somewhere around ancient Greece and move its way forward (laughs) sentence by sentence, year by year, you will know that somewhere Helen and Bunky Moon are laughing at you. (laughs) So there, there you go, listeners. Brace for what's coming. More seriously, I think it is actually a really interesting topic, or if not interesting, we will make it interesting, important topic. The hook here is we're going to talk this week about the WTO ministerial that's happening tomorrow, is it, Dimitri? Or right now? It's happening all this week, Monday to Thursday, unless it gets extended. And the special source here, and I'm really not joking here, is that Dimitri is a genuine trade expert. So if you are going to learn about why the WTO matters, why this ministerial matters, what's at stake, all of that, there is no better place or person to learn from than Dimitri. And it is going to be my job to pull him out of the weeds and make sure he stays big picture and relatable, a task that I uh, do not take lightly. It's going to be not the easiest thing in the world, but we'll do it anyway. But before we get to that, two quick things just to mention, sort of roundup of news or at least discussion. First thing is the second anniversary, I use that word very, very loosely, anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think it was the 24th of February, uh, Mm -hmm. 2022. So that was over the weekend. Thoughts? I know we've talked about Ukraine a few times, but any kind of top of mind thoughts of late? We dug into a a lot of this last week, so I don't want to get too much into it. It's obviously just an incredibly sad and frustrating situation to watch. Modern wars going back decades, if not centuries, have been contests of industrial capacity, industrial production. And here we have the incredibly frustrating spectacle of Ukraine, which is ostensibly allied with the West, that has absolutely vast resources, like eclipsing by many, many factors that available to Russia and its coalition of pariah state allies and a combination of domestic politics, a weird commitment to avoiding escalation, really just a very kind of low risk threshold and a bunch of other factors mean that the West has been trickling in support and in the US case has stopped sending support entirely despite having vast stockpiles, all the while hundreds of missiles and 
thousands or hundreds of thousands of tons of ammunition pour in from the likes of North Korea and Iran into Russia. And it is just hair-pullingly frustrating to watch, especially when you have something like the Munich Security Conference, where you know you get all of these tearful speeches about Western commitment to Ukraine and how it doesn't stand alone. And you contrast that to a front line where they're having to fire one shell for every five that's coming at them. I have two kind of highline comments on, on one related to that, but just generally on the war. The first one is there is an emerging narrative here in the US, particularly among sort of more right-wing foreign policy kind of folks. And I, I, I hesitate to say hawks because that doesn't really apply anymore, right? It's like isolationist right-wing folks kind of criticizing the Biden administration for not providing more um, more support and quicker. The idea of, you know, kind of what you're talking about there, although I know you're not making this point, but the idea of like, if you're going to support Ukraine, what the hell is the point in drip feeding them so that they do lose lots of people, but they don't, you know, you know the war, war is kind of prolonged as it were. And, you know, I think it's an interesting argument that if you were going to support them all along, why didn't you just go in, you know, early on and give them what they need to actually win the war. I think that does rewrite history a little bit. I, I, I vividly, one of the things about writing a daily newsletter and being thinking about this stuff all the time is it does get burned into my brain what the, the, the chief narratives were at mm. the time. And we were all really worried about nuclear escalation in the first 12 months-ish, maybe even 18 months of the war because Putin does a really good job of rattling that saber. You know, we can all look back now and go, he was never going to do it. But I, I, I know 100% that smart people who know what they're talking about, who are not alarmist, were saying this is a risk and we shouldn't take it lightly. That was the primary reason for not, you know, rushing in and, and giving Ukraine everything they needed. So that, that's the first thing. I, I'm not saying it's right. And I'm saying with hindsight, obviously, it, it's, it's led to a whole suite of other problems. The second thing is I, I, I read um, a very good friend of mine, Jacob Shapiro, um, is a is a esteemed geopolitical analyst and he has a great newsletter. He kind of pointed out, an, so Advika, which was the is the Ukrainian town on the front lines that just changed hands, Russia took it back at great cost, I might add, something like, I mean, estimates of anywhere between fifteen and 30,000 troops dying, which is just an astonishing toll for a, for an, a modern army to take in what is really a small changing of hands of territory and not a particularly strategic town other than it is where it is. Um, but he, he points out in his newsletter recently that there was a disturbing report about Russia gaining air superiority in the region and that's why they were able to take it over. And Russia has not had air superiority at all during this war, which has been one of the big reasons Russia's been so inept. He kind of points out that they had Russian air superiority for that period of that battle, but he goes on to sort of quote a few experts saying it's probably not a, a long-term thing. Ukrainian anti-air defenses are still pretty good, but I think it all gets tied into that idea of like, are we still going to provide them with Patriot batteries and and the actual ammunition, the missiles to, to shoot down Russian, Russian planes? Because if they do get air superiority, I mean, we kind of act like Russia's invasion failed and it almost certainly has, but... There's, you know, there's a there's an outlier opportunity that if things went really bad, Russia could retake a lot of stuff. And air superiority, I think, is probably one of those keys. But anyway, those are two thoughts. Uh, I think there's a few really valid thoughts, and I don't want to sort of spend too much time on Ukraine because I know our audience will be dying to get to the World Trade Organization, uh, the <laughs> trade heads. Gives the people what they um, want. I, I mean, on, on your two points, you know, I was one of the people who was saying, no, no, you got your escalation strategy right the first time, which is the unacceptable point of escalation will come if 
NATO assets directly engage Russian assets, and anything short of that will not trigger nuclear war. But as you say, there were very, very smart people that I respect that were operating in good faith that were saying, no, no, we need to set our escalation risk threshold lower than that, that it is possible that simply handing over certain forms of equipment to Ukraine will trigger escalation that leads to a nuclear exchange or the use of tactical nukes. I didn't agree with that take, and I'm very comfortable with my record pushing back on it, but I don't think that the people saying that were stupid to think so. It's not an unreasonable and I think point. If, I think if you're the president or if you're a prime minister, that it's very it's not, it's easy to say that and be right and have really great analysis and, you know, be bulletproof on that. It's another thing to say, yes, let's do it because history will forever blame you if there is a nuclear war. So that's, that's, you know, not very long. You'll have about 30 minutes of, uh, of blame and then it won't be your, of, of embarrassment. Um, <laughs> but, but on, on your second point about, uh, Avdiivka, a couple of things, it's so complicated. Like on the one hand, very strategic point. On the other hand, it's walking distance from Donetsk City. It's about 12 kilometers from the center of Donetsk, which has been in Russian hands since 2014. So there's that to remember. On the air superiority point, on the one hand, the Ukrainian intercept rate of missiles and sort of drones heading to Ukrainian territory has dropped to about 50% from 90% due to a shortage of missiles. So there is that is definitely happening. On the other hand, this week, Ukrainian air defense, or possibly Russian air defense, it's not like a billion- Shut down another like, AWACS yeah. plane, right? Yeah, managed to shoot down one of Russia's perhaps like four remaining AWACS planes, planes. Yeah. that they are absolutely incapable of ever replacing. The last one was built in 91, and they just don't have the tech or the money to rebuild it. And they've shot down a number of Su-34s. So, so it's- it's so hard to know what is happening. The fog of war is so thick. But yeah, the, these guys need missiles. Like Patriot batteries need things, need Patriot missiles. There's no there's no going around it. And the US hasn't been sending anything for quite a few months now. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there. There's plenty we could say. Maybe we'll do another Ukraine update in a couple of weeks or something like that if, if there's overwhelming demand. Because I mean, we really could just talk about it forever. Second quick thing to mention, and I and I mean quick because we're, we're running over a, a bit late already, but um, the Security Council uh, last week vetoed, or sorry, I should say the US in the Security Council vetoed a resolution for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. You know, nothing new there. The US has objected to the language of immediate ceasefire for a while, although they did put forward an alternative resolution that kind of used ceasefire language, but there's a lot of, you know, it's very in the weeds, but there's a lot of horse trading in the Security Council around hostages and, you you know, Israel's right to defend itself and its right to not, you know, want to have an immediate ceasefire until the hostages are back. They, the US vetoed this resolution basically saying that if we passed this, it would undermine the hostage negotiations that are going on right now because that would give Hamas, that would remove the credible threat that Hamas currently has of ongoing destruction of its, you know, everything. But I think a lot of folks who are watching this stuff, at least at arm's length, find it pretty, the US's ability to kind of thread that needle of, hey, we are pro the end of violence against Palestinian civilians, but we are going to keep vetoing stuff in the Security Council based on linguistic anomalies and all this kind of stuff. I I think there's a sense that the political rope is getting, if it's not already run out, it's mighty short. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. I mean, the US has vetoed every 
every resolution kind of condemning Israel for, for years now, for many, many, many years. It's been a reliable veto for Israel in the Security Council, and they always cite a reason. They always point to something, but it is a fairly reliable pattern that's kind of continued into now, and I think people are justifiably saying, do you really have a, a textual objection here, or is this is this about providing diplomatic cover multilaterally to your ally? On the other hand, I'm always sort of saying, you know, people get overblown about these things of like, oh, the US administration has prevented a resolution of Gaza, a peaceful resolution of Gaza by vetoing this. And I'm fairly skeptical that even a UN resolution going against them in the Security Council would push Netanyahu and his cabinet to do anything other than what they want to do. This is not to say that the US is off the hook, that the US is blameless, or that pressure of many different kinds couldn't alter. Israeli decision-making, but I do think you can get a little bit too excited and sort of binary about the ability of the U.S. to just turn Israeli actions on a dime. I think that's right. I think I think vetoing a, a resolution is much more about not wanting to open up a public rift between Israeli and U.S. governments, which would happen if the U.S. didn't veto it and Israel continued to ignore it. There would be a lot of pressure for the U.S. to kind of more openly part from the Israeli government's position. I have one reflection on this and I, and I think it's it, it's interesting. There's a lot of different threads that kind of you need to pull on, but the decision of Hamas or, you know, decision, whatever you want to call it, of Hamas to take 200 odd hostages on October 7th is a really interesting tactic because in once, and I think what it does show is that Hamas is a horrific organization that gives zero and I'll swear here, so apologies, but zero fucks about the Palestinian people and is run by Iran and Iran's strategic objectives well in advance of any kind of Palestinian statehood, that kind of stuff. Because by taking hostages, they both give Israel the cover, as it were, to continue Mm -hmm. this kind of, and I'm not saying it's justifiable at all. So like, let's get that out of the way. I'm saying they give the bare political credibility to Netanyahu to use it as an excuse to continue to bomb civilians and to hunt Hamas with, by saying, Hey, when you release the hostages, then we'll talk by continuing not to release the hostages. They are again, not causing the violence, but at least complicit in its continuing because they do have the ability to, I think at least stop it. And by not doing it, they are, and again, I'm not saying, I'm not saying this justifies Israel doing anything it's been doing because obviously, you know, Israel has a choice to stop as well. But the decision to take hostages is just, I think when you look at that kind of stuff on its face, you're like, okay, you're taking hostages for leverage so they can kind of prevent violence in the future. And yet they're not. And I don't know what the point of what in their brains is the point of taking the hostages. Like, are they holding onto them now for like, what, what could they possibly, what, what leverage do they have left? Their, their place is destroyed, you know, however many tens of thousands or potentially hundreds of thousands of civilians have died. Are they genuinely just holding them to like get until they get a statehood or like what's the end goal here? And I just, I feel like it's, it's an interesting thread and there's probably going to be a lot of IR PhDs written on kind of all of those negotiations and, you know, maybe it just keeps them in the headlines for longer, or maybe it's it, maybe it's Iran just wanting to prolong this conflict as long as possible. Because the longer it goes on, the more damage it's clearly doing to Israel's public standing in the world, the more it's doing to its internal politics. I would argue. I think once this kind of stuff ends, 
you know, there's going to be a huge reckoning in Israeli society politically. So maybe, maybe that's the goal. Maybe the, maybe the hostages were like, hey, we can really make sure this war lasts for as long as it possibly can if we take 200 people and, and don't release them. I don't know. It's just an interesting element of all of this. I've been thinking the exact same thing. There's analysis that sort of says that the Hamas strategy, as it were, was to cause a lot of damage, provoke a Israeli response, and then hold out until a combination of international domestic pressure makes Israel back off. And I think the taking of the hostages has significantly undermined that strategy in exactly the way that you describe in that it it has given a kind of more of a talking point that allows Netanyahu to continue the war that he and his cabinet clearly very much want to continue by saying, well, we've got a mission here and we haven't accomplished it. And that mission is to recapture the hostages, which is much more kind of binary and measurable than destroying Hamas, which is a kind of much more nebulous kind of thing. Yeah. As you say, there are going to be PhDs written on this and it's hard to speculate about motives and strategy, but it is something I've been thinking about as well. I think it's a really good point. Yeah. And I, and it's also just interesting to reflect on, like we all know, I mean, maybe, maybe it's not as widely known as I would imagine it, but like we all know that Iran is conducting this or at least not directly, but they have created a a space for Hamas to do this kind of stuff. And I imagine if they wanted to tell Hamas to let go of the hostages, they could have done it by now. So it's also interesting to me about what's going on behind the scenes of the politics of Iran and Saudi and the US and Israel, that not more pressure is being put on Iran to bring their side of this to an end as well. It seems to be Israel understandably copying most of the grief. And that's because there's photos every day on every newspaper in the region of horrific stuff. So like rightly so, but it's just interesting to me that Iran causes this and arguably could end it or at least convince its proxy to end it, not to mention the Houthis, not to mention Hezbollah, all that stuff. And yet there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of international pressure on them to come to the table. No doubt there is people who know more about this than I do that would say, yes, that's because the US needs them for X, Y, Z. And I'm sure that's true, but it's just interesting. I also just think like Iran is significantly more resistant to getting yelled at on like social media and getting protested than democracy. Also true. Democratic governments tend to get protested more and pushed more and be granted greater sense of agency because there is a sense that they are vulnerable to that kind of pressure that is public. As you say, we don't know what's happening behind the scenes. But I wonder why it's not a a UNSC strategy for like the US to be like, okay, we'll push Israel, but we also have to have pass a resolution that, you know, damns Mm. Iran as well, because then it kind of really makes the point of like, there are two sides to this rather than just sort of, you know, linguistically nibbling around the edges, which I think is unconvincing. Anyway, we digress a little too long. Let's punch on to the very exciting main course. We've had the, we've had the, we've had the, the hors d'oeuvres and now we're onto the, the piece of resistance. A noble attempt by John to divert me for an hour. It's like Dimitri, Ukraine, what do you think? <laughs> exactly. And then, oh, we didn't get time to talk about the WTO. Okay. I set it up a little bit at the start, at the introduction. This week is the WTO ministerial meetings. I think the best way to start this is just to like, and I'm going to keep you to a timeline here, Dimitri, is just to explain the WTO in very broad strokes, what it is in 2024, what the purpose of it is, and what we should kind of know about it at a high level. And why, why, why should we care about it at all? And then we can start to talk about the ministerial and what that might mean for more regional geopolitics and and kind of that stuff. So 
There's your question. WTO, what's the high level WTO for idiots? And I am an idiot here because I know nothing about the WTO by, you know, intentionally. I've, I've avoided learning about it. So tell me what I need to know. Okay. I'm going to try to do this as quickly and simply as possible. In the lead up to the Second World War, a bunch of governments attempted to deal with unemployment by keeping out foreign products, by slapping tariffs, import taxes on products that would come from abroad. The thinking being, if you can't buy a cheap hammer from England, someone will have to build a factory at home to make that hammer for you. That factory will become competitive because the English hammer is too expensive because of these border taxes, and that will create jobs. A whole bunch of countries tried doing that at once, pretty much leading into the Great Depression. Not only did it not work, but it severely exacerbated many of the economic problems, contributed to the rise of populism, and ultimately led to, in part, to the Second World War and the rise of fascism in Italy and then Germany. So coming out of World War II, there was a sense among the allies who were concerned about that happening again, but also looking to build a bulwark against communism and establish the groundwork for rebuilding Europe and the rest of the world, but mostly Europe, after the Second World War, that something needed to be done to prevent this happening again. And so uh, about 20-something-odd countries in 1947 entered into a treaty called the GATT, the General Agreements on Tariffs and Trade, that basically tried to establish a baseline for how much governments can mess with international trade. So the idea here being like anti-protectionism. Exactly. So basically, we are going to all agree to our own maximum level of protectionism. We'll still allow ourselves some protectionism, but we're going to, for every kind of product in existence, we're going to say amongst ourselves, this is the highest tariffs will ever be on cars. And this is the highest tariffs will ever be in the US on potatoes. So the idea is that you create that predictability and that ceiling and you kind of hear and know further. So sort of like a, a, a competitive marketplace to a point. Exactly. Governments always want the ability to mess with international commerce a bit to give some of their chosen special industries that are strategically or just politically important a bit of a leg yeah. up. They weren't ready to give it away entirely, but they were like, well, let's at least kind of agree that on the things we don't care about, we won't do it. And let's agree a maximum on the things we do care about. The best example of of that that I've that I've heard, you know, you've always got the corn in Iowa kind of example, but it was always rice in Japan. Um, oh, yeah. You know, they ca they can't grow it uh, in anywhere near economically like competitively, but it is such like a cultural important thing that a that there's Japanese grown rice and b that it's kind of like the way of life of the rice farmers that it was worth protecting. So they have huge tariffs, I, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So if you look at well, what's called the Japanese tariff schedule, which lists out their maximum tariffs, it's all kind of very, very low, like single digit, zero, zero, zero. And then it gets to rice and a few other products and it's like 600%. Yeah. Because they're like, no, we just don't want our rice farmers to ever face competition. It's, as you say, a historic cultural thing for us. We don't care about free trade on rice, so we won't do it. Yeah, okay, cool. Go on. So they established this maxim. In order to make that work, they also had to make some other commitments because basically their concern was, hey, we're all going to trade this access to our markets, but what happens if you other governments then turn around and use something like regulations to keep our products out anyway? 
So there you're talking about say, hey, yeah, there's no tariffs on cars, but you've said they have to have 96 different airbags and we can't produce them economically along with your, your guys. So it's basically a tariff or? Even more extreme than that, if you decide that your the cars in the US have to have 96 airbags, then as long as you're holding your domestic car producers to that rule as well, the WGS feels a bit weird, but okay. It is more like you say that in order to be a US compliant, the car has to be made from US steel. Or you say that I see. British cars are go- have to be tested 52 times a week for lack of bulldog hair. So <laughs> sure. basically just abusing the power of the regulatory state. To- British bulldog hair. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the treaty kind of grew. And to kind of make it all work, they had a dispute settlement system where basically states could take one another to task through a procedure when they felt another state wasn't living up to the rules. That lasted for, God, uh, 50 years until the 90s. So it was fairly harmonious, you would say, from kind of the early days of it through till the 90s, like through the Cold War, it was fairly harmonious? Yeah, but for the first sort of 30, 30, 40 years, it worked really well. They expanded the membership. More and more kind of countries joined this thing. And people were using the dispute settlement system well, and it was all kind of going okay. So that's a, this is a point I think we'll come back to a little bit later on when we talk about some of the, the big players in it. But why would you want to join that? Why would you want to give up the political freedom to put tariffs on? What's the advantage? Once you join the World Trade Organization, yes, you take on those commitments, but every other WTO member is now bound by those commitments where you're concerned. If you're not a member of the World Trade Organization or the GATT as it was at the time, I could have any tariffs on you I wanted. As soon as you join the organization and we let you into the organization, I have to charge tariffs on your goods within those limits I agree to charge on anybody. So it is a guaranteed level of market access to some of the richest economies in the world. And you're basically betting that the market access to those places is worth more to you than the ability to pr- like put up walls around your economy and produce internally. That's the bet. Like the, the, the sort of surplus will be there. That's right. There, there's a couple of other benefits as well where a lot of the reasons that countries join is as a way of pushing through domestic reforms they want to make, but which they know are going to be unpopular because it gives you a big external bad or goal that you can point to where you go, I'm joining the WTO, which will be great, but they are making me you know, stop subsidizing farmers in the way that I'm currently doing, which I privately hate, but which is quite popular. Don't look at me. This is the WTO membership making us do this. So it's a way of kind of locking in and creating some reforms as well. All right. Okay. So let's fast forward then to the more modern day. You say it's, it worked for the first 30, 40 years that I, I, I'm going to jump ahead and guess that it's not working so well now. So it's actually kind of, Peaked and then trotting and peaked and now it's trotting again. What's not working about it now? So when it transformed into the WTO, it added a whole bunch of additional issues. It used to just be about goods, just goods and not even like agricultural goods, just like mostly manufacturers. When it transformed from the GATT into the WTO, it added on agriculture, intellectual property, services. Services, So it massively expanded the remit of the organization. And it also created for the first time 
in international law, truly, I mean, if we're, if we're being serious, a kind of binding form of dispute settlement, where ultimately every WTO member committed and said that if we go through the process, if another member has an issue with how our trade policy works, and we go through the WTO processes, which we're obliged to take part in, and at the end, the appellate body, which is kind of like the appeals court or the Supreme Court, decides that we are in the wrong, we accept that we are in the wrong. And the appellate body can either, will tell us to change it. And if we don't change it, the appellate body will effectively punish us by letting the complainant slap massive tariffs on us. So that was like a revelation in international trade, because these can be billion dollar judgments. Mm. In the Boeing Airbus case, there was like $7 billion worth of tariffs a year were authorized by the sides in retaliation. So and and who makes those deal. decisions? Is, is there a, like a court? There is, or the rather, there was. So it's a two-stage process. First, there is a panel, which is kind of three legal experts selected from a, from a list look at the case, and they make a judgment. If one side wants to appeal, it goes to the appellate body, which is a standing body of judges agreed by the membership, of which three look at a case and review it as the Supreme Court might sure. a decision by okay. a lower circuit court. That no longer exists because a couple of years ago, the US, which has had a number of bugbears with the appellate body, started blocking all appointments to it. So it is the equivalent of the if the US Supreme Court had no justices, that's where the WTO appellate body is at. So that's one of the things that's not working. Two more questions before we get onto what's happening this week. One, what is the difference? Like, what, why do I still see so many countries then also concluding free trade agreements with other countries? What's the dynamic of playing into the WTO? Surely if the WTO is there, everyone kind of has a free trade-ish agreement with everybody else. Is that right? Or They do have a baseline one. But one of the fundamental principles of the World Trade Organization, the way it tries to maintain predictability in world trade, is it basically says that you have to offer the same tariffs to every member unless you have a free trade agreement with them. What it's trying to prevent there is a US president, I'm not thinking of any specific one, playing a game of golf with their Japanese counterpart losing and raising car tariffs by 10% on the flight home, then getting off the plane, having some great sushi and cutting it by 13%, which would make it impossible for anyone to try to decide where to build a factory. Business certainty, right. So this principle called most favored nation basically says you've got to offer everybody the same thing. That's made it really, really hard can, to can you just, agree sorry, can, can, I, can I get you to do 30 seconds, 45 seconds on most favored nation? Because I feel like it pops up quite a lot across these kinds of conversations, but it's it's not a difficult principle, but I think it's a confusing one. If you just like highline, what, what is it? It's terribly named because it's like the it opposite is. of what it sounds like it is. Exactly, yes. What it actually says is that you have to treat the imports from any WTO member as well as you treat the imports of the country to whom you provide the best treatment. So if you it's kind have of anti most favored nation, right? Like it's no yes. favorites net ne yeah, or something. Uh, uh, listen, the trade community is not great at branding. First to admit <laughs> That's it. for sure. Um, <laughs> so basically, like if you have a five percent tariff on cars with the US, you also have to give that five percent tariff to every other member. It's to discourage tweaking tariffs. So then shouldn't um free trade agreements with one country really be free trade agreements with every country that you're that's a WTO member? 
That's exactly right. However, when they were signing these agreements, the people who were writing them were like, well, hold on. First of all, some countries, I might be willing to liberalize with some countries faster than I am with the entire WTO membership. So like, I don't mind giving Samoa automotives access into my market because I'm not worried about being flooded with Samoan cars, but I have some concerns about Italy. And secondly, they're like, hold on, it's going to be really hard to get the entire WTO membership to collectively agree to lower their tariffs because it would mean like coming up with a formula that works for everybody. So they knew some groups of countries would want to move faster. So they created a special clause in the WTO rules that says that provided your free trade agreement covers substantially all trade, you can have one. So as long as you do a really big, serious free trade agreement, you're allowed to lower your tariffs through that free trade agreement without lowering them. Without giving it to the rest. It's going to be a a big lift. It's going to be like like two products. A good faith effort at general liberalization, not like a smart ass way of getting around the rules and being like, oh, we want to give it to our buddies, but not everybody. Okay. I feel we're running up against the limit of most people's ability to care about the WTO. Is there anything else that we need to know before we move into the more newsy stuff about it? Yeah. I mean, just in terms of like caring about it and why it matters, it's not sexy, but the important thing to understand here is that baseline of predictability enabled a lot of the capital flows around the world. So important. Yeah. The reason we managed to lift so many people out of poverty all over the world is that people felt that world trade was going to be predictable enough that it was worth building a supply chain that crosses borders six times. Exactly. And you know, we the Australian election, the US election, the British election, one of the things you always hear is we the business community needs certainty. All of these people need certainty around government regulation. I think it's a key critique from the center right of government action, government intervention is fine, but do something, stick to it and don't keep chopping and changing because we need to make decisions that are three, five, 10, 20, 30, 50 years into the future because we're investing in, as you said before, factories, um, semiconductor foundries, all this kind of stuff. WTO basically took a huge chunk of the world and said, okay, we're going to try and give you some of that certainty. It doesn't always work, but the idea is give you some baseline certainty to so that you can make decisions beyond the political horizon. Is that is that a fair way to say it? Absolutely. If you ask the business community whether they would prefer better trading conditions locked in for a year or worse trading conditions locked in for 15, they'll take the latter every single time. That's a great because point. They, they can deal with most things, but every time you change the rules, every time you change the terrain, they have to pivot, they have to expend a huge amount of money figuring it out, and they don't like that. And I suspect that what you've just said there is a key rebuttal to criticism of the WTO, right? Like people might say, oh, the WTO doesn't do this, or it's not doing that, or it's led to this ridiculous outcome in this one situation. But maybe folks who are proponents of the WTO or at least a global trading system like it would say, sure, it does lead to sometimes not great outcomes, but taken on average, it has increased the certainty or decreased the unpredictability of the global business environment. And as you said, most businesses, most people are better off and would prefer that. Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. And that is the defense that it, that is often made. You can be, you can sort of push back even further and sort of say a lot of the time that people say, oh, the WTO did this and this, 
in actuality, it was the governments did something and then pointed to the WTO because it was convenient. Like every multilateral institution yeah, is because exactly. you, 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 you can point to, oh, it's the UN and all that kind of ridiculous. Well, all right. Right. Two weeks ago, it was, it's actually the WEF. It's just always the, the it's WEF. It's all the WEF. The lizard people. <laughs> the lizard people. <laughs> all right. Um, what's happening this week with the WTO? Why are we even talking about it? The ministerial, what is it and why does it matter? So one of the difficulties that the WTO has always had is that it has a negotiating function where it's meant to kind of keep pushing the rules further, changing the rules, updating them, making them more relevant, and liberalizing trade more. That requires an expenditure of political capital on the part of ministers that they are loath to expend. So something that sort of the WTO fell into is that it has these ministerial conferences every two years which create like an apex inflection point with that kind of the negotiations going on nonstop, but without a looming deadline and like a single date at which they are supposed to deliver, there's a lot of incentive for people not to put any skin in the game, to delay, not to make compromise. So every two years, ministers from all of the WTO members, or almost all of them, gather in one spot for a week of negotiations that are supposed to produce something that are supposed to be the culmination of the negotiations that have happened over the last two years. And the 13th such meeting under the WTO is happening this week in Abu Dhabi. Okay. And like, what does that mean? So like, there's a bunch of people who, uh, ministers, trade ministers of countries that head there and, and they get in a room and they discuss, or is it, is there a specific, is it like a specific goal that they need to talk about? Or is it just a general coming together? So what they will do is they will bring with them to Abu Dhabi a range of the issues that have been on the table in Geneva for many, many months, in some cases, 20 years. So an example of that is there is a decision on the table to extend a moratorium, an agreed ban on placing tariffs on what's called electronic transmissions. So when you buy a song on the Google Marketplace... There is an agreement among all WTO members that has to be periodically renewed that says we won't charge you a border tax on that import. It's also broad enough to cover not charging things like a tax on emails, uh, incoming emails from abroad, or incoming data transmissions from abroad. That lapses unless they reach a decision to extend it this week in Abu Dhabi. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I was going to, my next question to you was like, if these issues have been outstanding for years uh, and these meetings are annual, I presume. Biannual. Biannual. Okay. So, which means every two years. Every two years. Yeah. I always get, I always get I, confused the, between biannual. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Semi-annual is two. Whichever yeah. one means every two years. Like, I right, don't know. Okay. So presumably a lot of decisions don't get made at these minutes? Like a lot of, there's a lot of impasses, a lot of things left oh, unresolved. Is that right? Absolutely. So the, the core issues that the WTO is supposed to be negotiating is lowering tariffs generally, reforming the agreement on agriculture and dealing with the huge amount of subsidies that go into agriculture and liberalizing services. It has never successfully really moved on any of those three since it was created in 94. So Those issues are completely stuck. At the last ministerial, they managed to complete negotiations on a 20-year negotiation to try to put some bans on subsidizing illegal and overfished stocks, Mm -hmm. which doesn't sound like something that needs a ban, but apparently needed a ban. It's a big issue. But it's a really big deal. 
I used to work on fishing issues. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, and some of these, some of these illegal kind of fishing fleets or unmonitored China. fishing fleets, <laughs> uh, to, to name a country at random. Yeah. That's <laughs> strip mining the ocean with like Seriously. fleets the size of aircraft carrier battle groups. It's, uh, look into it. It's horrifying. It is. That negotiation took like 20 something years. And okay. it's up for like expansion now. Is it too bold of me to suggest that they should meet annually? The frequency of meetings. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm be kidding. Complete, I'm being. No, I, I'm I mean, being facetious. Like, <laughs> like, there be have been suggestions of just locking all of the ministers in the building and not letting them out until There's they agree that. freaking something. When we were delegates, we all we used to joke that the way we could resolve all of the issues is just by all sending our interns into the the main meeting and just seeing what they come up with, and then we discovered we we agree we probably shouldn't do that in case they resolved all of the outstanding issues and, you're out and of the our job. bosses realized we were the problem the entire time. Right there, you've summed up bureaucracy is that most people trying not to find a solution because it means they'll lose a job. Anyway, uh, we'll park all my right, cynicism for a second. Give me the top line stuff that by the end of the week will be making news. What are we looking for? What's the sexiest stuff they're trying to negotiate? I use that word again, incorrectly. <laughs> I mean, making news is a is bold. Most of this stuff really struggles to make it anywhere near the front page outside of India, which has always been politically really focused on the WTO for a bunch of domestic Indian reasons. This stuff struggles to cut through, and I think that's entirely legitimate and fair. I don't think it should necessarily be cutting through. But in terms of the top line issues, we've already talked about the so-called e-commerce moratorium, which is this ban on tariffs at the border on electronic stuff. There is also an attempt to expand an intellectual property agreement waiver, which was passed or clarification of the waiver to basically make it slightly easier for governments to waive intellectual property rights when it comes to COVID-19 diagnostics and therapeutics. So the idea that when there's a legitimate emergency, we shouldn't have property rights or like, you know, IP rights to like prevent a group of people getting something they need because another country is being like, no, pay them first. Is that the general exactly. gist? And this is a really complicated issue because like you can, you already can under the agreement, but you might have to pay for compensation and you're not allowed to export what you okay. make. So it's it's complicated, but that's All what right. they're trying to expand this, this waiver that was issued. They are trying to reform the actual WTO. So a bunch of really nerdy technical stuff about how the organization works procedurally and trying to fix the dispute settlement system to the point where the US will let it exist again and allow the appointment of judges again. For the record, I don't think that's necessarily going to work, but hope springs eternal among trade lawyers. So some WTO reform talk. And India is very, very focused on something it's been worried about for a long time, which is that the way that it subsidizes its farmers and the way that it distributes food to its people is through a program called public stockholding, which puts them in breach of their WTO obligations. So basically, they are subsidizing in a way that is illegal under what they signed up to under the agreement on agriculture. They have always been worried about getting sued over it at the WTO, and they have been pushing for a very long time to basically have the WTO change the rules to say that what they are doing is actually fine. That's okay. not going to happen either, but India is very invested and that will definitely make news. Okay. That's interesting. Why don't we pull back then? So we've got a bit of a history of the WTO, what it is, what's happening this week, basically a meeting to sort of talk and try and resolve long running issues, complicated things in the WTO. We've got what you think are the biggest issues that'll be talked about this week, but let's pull back into sort of 
when I was in China, the idea that at WTO as a function of the global order, early 2000s, China joins. It's been a part of, was it early 2000s or late 1990s? Around that time, I think it was under Bush. So it must've been after 2000. China had been trying to join for a long time um, and it was really heralded as kind of, you know, what we now know to be an incorrect view that once China liberalized, democracy would come with it or at least a softening of their political system. When I was in China from 2015 to you know nearly 2020, the view I think was China had gotten in and then taken the piss, not done any of the things that WTO had said it should do, but had benefited from a lot of the market access and kind of eaten a lot of countries' industries alive by undercutting them. Now, I have no idea if that's true or not, and you're going to put me straight, but that was certainly a narrative that I had heard floating around that um, China had kind of undermined the WTO. The other argument you always hear, and I think you've kind of alluded to it, is that the that the US being its kind of most important member, arguably, or at least, you know, it, it's the most important country in the world in the, in the global system. So you've already described what happens when the US doesn't like something, it can really just throw the toys out of the pram and gum up the works for everyone. A huge criticism is that the US doesn't play by the rules it helped establish. So you have this kind of China US WTO tension. I don't know. Is that is that a fair summing up, or is it is are, are like the the kind of grand geopolitics of US China rivalry playing out in a very dull way in the WTO? <laughs> fair for the question, comrade John. Um, <laughs> So let's kind of let let's answer it this way. The US built the system and wrote the rules in large part by trading access to its market for the right to hold the pen. So the US lowered its tariffs more than almost anybody except eventually like Australia and New Zealand, uh, Singapore. So it lowered its tariffs, which gave people access to the massively lucrative US market that everybody wants. If you can get your stuff into the US you're set. Like Huge they population, just have so richest people on the planet. Tariffs. Exactly. Yeah. So they lowered their tariffs for, for everybody in exchange for basically everybody letting them write the rules and the text. That's an oversimplification, but that's how it worked. When China joined, it gained access to all of that market access into the US. So it, was, it gained the ability to sell into the US without tariffs. However, what quickly emerged is that the rules as written, in large part by the US, didn't quite work to constrain the way that China subsidizes and distorts commerce, because the Chinese system works very, very differently to the way that a Western country would go about subsidizing something. So if the US decided to subsidize its steel industry, right? It would pass a, a bill maybe in Congress, a law in Congress. It would, you know, the Department of Commerce would put out a thing detailing every point of it. It would all be super, super transparent, everything. And so if you wanted to challenge that and nothing at the WTO, nothing you do is WTO illegal until another member complains and you go through the procedure and are found guilty. So there's a kind of, everything's fine until someone bitches and can mm-hmm. prove that they're right. Mm-hmm. The Chinese system, if the Chinese want to subsidize an industry, they have a private but kind of state-owned financial entity issue that industry loans at well below market rate. Or they have a 
partially government-owned contractor put in a massive, massive future order for all of the all of the steel that this particular plant will ever make in its life in order to get it started and get it to scale. Or it orders one of the suppliers that's partially government-owned to sell it the inputs at half price. So you're saying basically it makes, it makes industry... Yeah, it makes industries or uh, companies or organizations economically viable when market conditions would mean they're not necessarily. The critical thing is that that's what subsidies always do, right? Right, or investment, full stop. But in the West, a subsidy would be like a government quite transparently probably sort of passes a, a thing and gives money, and you can literally look that up on their website and go to the WTO and file a complaint. You go, here's the legislation. Let me ask you what the difference then is for, I mean, is it because the defense industry is not included in these kinds of things? But I mean, the US will do that with uh, Boeing, for example. Uh, they will say, we'll buy, you, you build this plane that would otherwise not be economical, we'll buy the first 400 planes so that you build it, get the learning and can bring the, the cost curve down, right? So quite literally, there's a number, there've been, there's been a number of cases about Boeing specifically. And one of them successfully argued that the way that loans were given to Boeing was an illegal export subsidy because it was conditional on Boeing then selling more planes that it could ever conceivably sell without exporting. And export subsidies, subsidies that are conditional on exporting, are illegal under WTO rules. So the US system was found guilty. With that said, yes, defense, national security stuff is pretty firmly carved out. There's right. a national that security exception. You're allowed to do what you want. And what about corn and stuff like that? I mean, I'm, uh, you know, there's there's so much corn produced in the Midwest that you know you couldn't you, you couldn't possibly consume it. But then there's all these ethanol things and all these kinds of silly ways of of justifying it. it, it presumably, those things are WTO non-compliant. Uh, so the the US has managed to make them compliant through a combination of it's allowed a certain limit of subsidies under the Agreement on Agriculture. And a lot of the time, for example, for, for ethanol, the ethanol rules aren't conditional on buying corn in, in Iowa. In order to make ethanol-based fuel, you could buy corn from anywhere. It is just that the US creates huge artificial demand that it meets from corn that is grown right there because it's quite competitively grown. Um, anyway, this is, this is all very kind of in the weedsy stuff. But- well, yeah, and I was going to say, so why hasn't China been taken to the WTO and found guilty, as it were, like you just said, the US has been? So China has been successfully sued uh, quite a number of times. There's a couple of challenges with it. Firstly, the amount of intelligence gathering required to work out what China is even doing is vast. So there was a case on uh, Chinese agricultural subsidies, and they were happening at like the provincial level, the town level. It was all kind of completely impenetrable. And the US took a dispute because the US, I know, could task half the CIA to going door to door in Shenzhen to work out who was getting bags of money. If you're Australia and your entire kind of trade department is 12 people, that's a big lift. Australian trade mm. department, 200 people, but still, um, it's a big lift. But, so but the idea of just like actually finding out what's happening on the ground. Is so, and proving it is so hard. And the other thing is the WTO doesn't punish retroactively. So if you sue China and you win and WTO is like, that policy is not okay, China goes, fair enough, we'll change it. it. 
And then that took you six years. And then they changed the damage it to something already done. that's different, but also problematic. And you have to start again. So, and the damage is already done because presumably then they've taken market share from your domestic producers by that time and, and yeah, by but, kind but of hollowed your, you your out. producers start making something else because they can't yeah. hang out for, for decades waiting for you to sue China into compliance. Is it fair then to, some, to say China has been taking the piss in the WTO, like getting in and then wide-ending it from the inside? I think that that is, there is a legitimate critique to the extent that that is, seems to be fair in some sectors. I don't want to kind of take sides, you know, the, the country's taking a piss, but certainly Chinese state capitalism is just very resistant to being disciplined the way that Western capitalism, for example, is. I think from your answer, you can tell uh, which one of us feels like they might at one point want to visit China in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 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 never going I'm back. The Great Wall. You spent five years there. Give me a break, dude. Very very, very worthwhile seeing. Like. Very worthwhile seeing. Um, okay, so so then, well, let me let me kind of like comment on that because I think there are two narratives about China over the last 20, 25 years, and they kind of are in that sort of time frame of joining the WTO to about Xi Jinping's end of his first term, second term around 2013, 14, 15, where maybe. They join, they don't immediately kind of get up to speed on all of this stuff, but all of the efforts around it could be kind of lumped under the category of, hey, we're a giant country with a really difficult to manage economy. It's not about clicking your fingers and becoming compliant overnight because we have, you know, so many industries, as you said, much of it provincial, disconnected from decision makers. Give us time and we will get up to being a really good world citizen WTO member and everything will be great. And then maybe over the last 10 years, let's say, the idea that kind of the switch has flicked in the way the world sees China and saying, oh, you were always just buying time to grab market share by taking advantage of our mutually kind of beneficial rules, the idea of a game theory kind of like tragedy of the commons, when one person breaks the equilibrium, mm -hmm. the whole system falls apart. We now see what you were doing from the start is joining this, getting the advantages, white adding our economies and our domestic producers by undercutting them by all the ways you just said, you know, finance, blah, 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 blah. And now you never had any intention to be WTO member. So the WTO is, is now useless. And that feels like to me a predominant narrative of people who are critical of multilateral institutions, of trade institutions, that the idea of we now have our bad actor, it's China, they're ruining everything, so we can't, like, the whole thing is kaput. Any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, I have, I guess I have a couple. It's always worth remembering that sort of even we focus laser-like on the key sectors in which the big players are either breaking the rules or exploiting loopholes in the rule, like the security exception, to do things that are contrary to the spirit of the WTO. And that tends to be in areas like steel, in areas like cars, in areas like solar panels, basically strategic sectors where the two countries have decided to duke it out for who gets to run the future. Or frankly, sectors that like are in the rust belt and thus will decide who gets to be president at every election from now until the end of time. So that kind of thing. I will say that looking at kind of the Chinese trajectory, the period of joining WTO coincided with a big focus by China on inviting an investment and creating a positive business climate. I mean, I, you've, you've talked about this before. China has never been like the easiest place in the world to do business, but they had a real strategy of like, we're going to make ourselves attractive. 
there was a real sense that that's how they were going to move from kind mm-hmm. of developing nation into middle and rich country was becoming part of the global system, the global economic system that has yep. benefited so many people since World War II. They wanted to be a part of it. And I think my, you know, the narrative I, I sort of put out there is one that I've heard from a lot of people. I think it's more complicated. I think they genuinely did want to be part of that. And then lots of things happened, in, you know, not limited to domestic political stability and security being tied to the fact that the Communist Party needed to stay in power. But I think they did want to join that. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think, uh, I mean, I not remotely qualified to have a take, but that instinctively sounds like it makes sense to me. They basically found themselves maybe half a decade, maybe a little bit more, looking at the way things were going and saying, okay, this kind of rapid growth and the the mega corporations we've created and all of these other things are creating destabilizing factors internally, other sources, concentrations of power within China beyond the full control of the CCP. We're inviting foreign corporations in, all this kind of stuff. We need to tighten the screws. You put your finger on it before. What you're doing by joining the WTO is giving up some of your political control mm-hmm. over your economy by because you are forced to compete with other countries. And in a system like America or the UK or a freer system, a more resilient system, it can often take those punches, but you have an election, you elect the other guys, blah, 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 blah. But when that kind of instability or the idea of when things go wrong, we will not have these levers to pull domestically because we are a member of the WTO, that becomes less politically attractive to a, a leadership of a, of a more authoritarian country, I think. As well as also you just look at it and you're like, you know, the Chinese system could not tolerate the equivalent of an Elon Musk, for example. You have In the US, you have a situation where you have Elon Musk who is slagging off the US president to millions of people every day from a position of immense power. And the U.S. system is like, okay, that's fine. Like he's allowed to, he, he's allowed to own Twitter and do that. And the mm. U.S. system takes that. When the Chinese Communist Party was looking at people like Jack Ma emerging, who were famous in their own right, the head of massive corporations, even though he was largely, I mean, he, he wasn't critical of the Chinese system particularly, they were looking at that situation of going, we don't ever want to be in that position again. We don't ever want to be in a position where we're dealing with a figure that's too big to curtail. We need to start tightening the screws and rebuilding government control over the economy. And that began impacting business community, began impacting investment at a time when other countries finally started getting their logistics and their other business factors house in order and started competing with China on things like tech manufacturing. Okay, so we're running a little late, and I, I I feel like you could talk about this for another five hours, but um, we may we may lose every last three of our listeners. My last question to you is: How does this affect the U.S. politically in the election later this year? Is the falling apart of the WTO? Although I accept that that's a bit of a false narrative; it's not necessarily mm-hmm. falling apart, but the 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 idea that people might think it is, or the multilateral system is breaking, is that kind of why Donald Trump has come to power or has been so influential in that sense of like, okay, things are falling apart, time to stick the walls up and become protectionist again? Is that how it's going to affect the election? There's a couple of things. First of all, I think one of the challenges that the US, or rather that the WTO has at the moment, is that it is no longer seen as remotely a failing for a US minister to go to a WTO ministerial and come back, quote unquote, empty handed without a bunch of decisions being made, without a bunch of progress. It's not considered a failing, which means that the US 
doesn't feel that political pressure to lead the organization anymore. To the extent, I don't know how much it did in the past, but it, but it seemed to. So I think that that's one thing. I do think that the the WTO is a is a scapegoat in a lot of ways and a convenient shorthand for a backlash to some combination of globalization, modernity, kind of the 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 fact that manufacturing is becoming increasingly a low kind of low headcount, high tech field, the fact that you don't have company towns where 15,000 people work at a bread factory and that's sort of a job for life. All of these kind of things. Scary change. And that matters. Do I think that that was, those things were ever, most of those things I think were fairly inevitable. And I don't think the WTO having not existed would have prevented a lot of those a lot of those factors being at play today. So you, you don't expect WTO to be an election issue per se. Like trade and protectionism will, of course, because of dying industries, but the WTO itself won't be a key thing. So I fully expect, for example, Trump to occasionally attack the WTO in his stump As shorthand speech, for global as elites. shorthand and- for just like... Every, like, you know, the, the same way that people will use, like, as we said, the WEF as like just shorthand for elites. And what about the other side of politics? Are they, are they, do they agree with that, but don't say it? Or are they pro WTO or that vibe? The other side of politics wants to do more protectionist things. That's my sense. And they are increasingly finding, they find elements of the commitments under WTO chafing where they're like, okay, these rules say we shouldn't subsidize specific industries, but we really want to. Mm. And so far, they found workarounds by basically invoking national security whenever they want to do it, whenever they want to subsidize or slap tariffs on Chinese products and the things that they care about. But the other side doesn't know what its policies are going to be five years from now and is in no mood to create new rules or empower an organization that's going to red card them for it. Okay. I think that's a great answer. And um, I'm going to ask you one final question, and I want a one-word answer, which can be taken out of context when people clip it. But you know, this is the this is the life of a podcaster. If I had to sum up our conversation about the WTO, it strikes me that the core dynamic here is the trading off of political options for over time better economic outcomes. That's the kind of bargain in a world that is fragmenting, becoming more multipolar, more nativist, arguably. That trade-off. I think the balance of that trade-off might be changing in a lot of politicians' minds. So, 2024 and beyond, is the WTO still fit for purpose? Yes or no? Yes. Good. And if you want to elaborate on that, you can do it in the next podcast when you say "but," because I because I know your every inch of your gut wants to go yes, except <laughs> no, but anyway. Um, right before we go, we do our little cocktail chatter, our chat about things that you're going to be mentioning in. Um, a party or a drink situation that is a little bit lighter, but still vaguely interesting. Um, I'll go first because uh, I came across this story the other day, or actually our team did, and it's that Singapore did a deal with Taylor Swift's concert promoter to make sure she exclusively performs in Singapore and none of the other ASEAN countries. I find this fantastically interesting, but basically she's playing five shows in this era's tour that we all know is taking over the world. Um, she's playing five shows in Singapore and not doing any in Thailand or any other of Southeast Asian country because of an exclusivity agreement with the government of Singapore. And I can't remember her promoter's name, but you know, the company that 
organizes her tours. And I, it just got me thinking of like, that is interesting. One, because Taylor Swift is now becoming a almost governmental level entity where governments are renting into agreements with her, which uh, I think, you know, I kind of push back about Taylor Swift being such a phenomenon. But if if I'm wrong, that's a pretty good indication of why I'm wrong. Um, and the second thing is Not like- that, Marissa. They will kill him. <laughs> no, I'm, I've got, I'm a marked man now. But um, the second thing is like, what's Singapore getting out of this? Like Taylor Swift's, you know, I, I don't feel like this is an area of competition. Like no one's going to be like, well, in that case, I'm going to invest in Singapore. That case, I'm moving to Singapore because I've got to catch this. Is it truly just a tourism play that- it rose to the level of Singaporean government that they were like five con. I mean, maybe five concerts brings in such an economic stimulus that it is worthwhile doing it. But also, I don't know, like it doesn't feel like, yeah, I don't know. It was just a confusing kind of story for me, but fascinating, I thought. First, I'm shocked it's not like considered causes belly. Like that's an. I'm hearing <laughs> the strategic Taylor Swift reserve is like article five. I don't know what, I don't know what they've got now there, but like that, it rises that level. Secondly, like if you think about the fact that a Taylor Swift concert causes a measurable spike in GDP, if you've got five of them and they are the only place in the entire region to see her, I imagine that that is worth 50 times whatever they paid her just yeah, in terms probably. of like people coming. Yeah. Plus, I mean, the, the Singaporean, how free and, Singaporean elections are is a like complex topic, but I mm. think like if my government, if, if I was a, a huge Taylor Swift fan, and my government had delivered me the only five Taylor Swift concerts in the entire region, I would sort of erect shrines in their honor and, and vote for them forever. So maybe from the government's perspective, it's like yeah, we, we got you, Tay Tay. Like come on, it's 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 fascinating too because I mean this is just the very very start of the kind of individual is king kind of. Um, era that we're moving into of online creators and all that kind of stuff. So like, you know, Taylor Swift is the first of what will be many, many more people who reach this level of uh, gravity. And I, I, they're all they're going to become like non, like non-government, government level entities. Weird. Anyway, yours, Dimitri, what are you chatting about? So I am bewitched by this phenomenon. I, I can't remember their name, but there is a creator on TikTok that is quite a progressive woman who basically just reads political news and updates in what is called an uwu voice. So oh, this Jesus kind Christ. of cartoonish voice that sounds, I guess like it's meant to sound like a Japanese cat or possibly high school girl. It's not super clear. It's an internet thing. But this person receives like hundreds of thousands of engagement points and is like a measurable influencer on the way that the youth think about things. And it'll literally just be like, she'll just say something in like, you know, casualties in Gaza have reached 20,000. And it's like, that is the way that news is being delivered to a generation of people. And I legitimately don't know what to think about it because like it's ridiculous, but also it's engaging people with international relations. Yes, and so like my initial reaction is just like, uh, what's the point in even you know engaging with the world? Uh, I'm only in my late thirties, but like, color me a sixty-five-year-old man sitting on the porch with a shotgun because like that that horrifies me. But then you know your actual real brain kicks in and you don't and you move past your gut and it's exactly what you just said like one of the big things about international intrigue is we 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 try to be 
witty or humorous or at least lighthearted where, where possible because at the end of the day, you don't want to feel like crap all the time. You, you don't want to feel like if reading the news now, we know the, we know what every, the world's burning. Everyone's always lolling about how oh, everything's terrible. And it's because the news is relentlessly bad. So if people are staying engaged, but getting it, as long as it's factual, as long as it's correct, and they're not leaving being engaged, feeling like they want to jump off a cliff, then I think that's on balance a good thing because being engaged and understanding what's going on around you is a good thing. Walling yourself off is a bad thing. If this helps do that, then, eh, you know, I'll put aside my, my, as the youth would say, big icks about it and just shut up. How many in our generation got a huge chunk of their news from John Stewart in The Daily Show. Well, exactly. Or Stephen and Colbert. I'm like, I don't want to, the look, spectrum, I don't want to compare right? the two. A 19-year-old in their basement sort of reading headlines with no editorial filter and no accountability is not the same thing as a Comedy Central show with a team of researchers that can frankly get sued and and was sued many, many times for, for like libel and defamation or whatever. There, there is a difference. But at the end of the day, we wanted lighthearted, political reporting and we got it in the form of the daily show dare we post a link to it in the show notes uh maybe not I, i'm okay. really worried because i don't know what's going to come out of her mouth next that's just fair like, enough I don't well, people can find it people can probably find it on the internet themselves if they're that curious Absolutely. all right dimitri we've run we've run far too long which was inevitable if i was going to let you off the leash on the wto i think um i've done a stunning job to keep it to this length if i'm honest just pat myself on the back there. You guys can't tell. He, was, he stood up at several points and paced around when I was giving the history of the gap. Standing ovation. <laughs> All right, Dimitri, thank you very much. We'll be back with you next week, probably with Helen. Can't promise because I have no idea where in the world she'll be, but, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll be with you either way. Thanks so much, John. Dialogue editing, mixing, and mastering for this episode was done by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions.